Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh, and I want to thank you for joining me. I am so glad to share this time with you today. At Valley View Friends Church, we are a congregation that is learning how to live as God's people who are concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. I want to encourage you to subscribe so you can always get the next podcast. Now let's turn our attention to this week's message. I have a love-hate relationship with GPS navigation. I just got to get that out of the way. I'm going to talk about GPS here for a moment. I I have a love-hate relationship with it. Now GPS has come a long way. I love having its help, uh, especially when I have to go to a place that I've never been before. I love being able to ask my phone, hey, where's the nearest gas station or the restaurant? And it can give me directions that are a part of my journey. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because I don't like admitting that I'm getting older, I am old enough to remember the days when the only GPS navigation my family had was a book of state maps that we kept under the front seat of the car. It was up to the navigator to decide which roads to take. There was no way of instantly bringing up turn-by-turn routes and alternative routes to specific addresses. At best, you could just get to the street a business was on or a destination was on. Uh, Distances were just kind of a guess. I think it's 10 miles to the next turn. However, using a map and making your own navigation decisions was a skill that in hindsight I now realize was very empowering. Now, I was excited when I got my first GPS computer. It was a decent one, but I quickly realized that its maps never updated. And that is actually worse than having a paper map. Because the computer made the decisions for navigation, but only had old information. Whereas with a paper map, which might have old information, I would make the decision with my current knowledge. And that GPS voice, more times than I liked, gave me bad directions. But it was my map, and I needed it. And (laughs) the GPS held all the power. It could talk to me. It was something that I found myself arguing with. Now, I'm a patient person and a calm person, and of course, when the GPS would talk to me, I would yell at it because I was frustrated. I think maybe we've all been in that moment. Maybe I'm the only one that ever talks back to the GPS. And the GPS would always taunt me, and it still does to this day. I'll say, no, I don't want to turn there. And its only response ever is recalculating. And so I have all these conversations with my GPS. There's no way I'm driving into that part of town recalculating. You're directing me into the heart of rush hour traffic. I don't want to do that. Recalculating. Of course I missed the turn. I've never called the street by that name before. No one calls it by that name. Recalculating. What if I don't want to turn here? Recalculating. And what are you going to do, all-knowing GPS, if I just choose to ignore your commands? And all it would say was recalculating in that snide, smug voice of its own. One time I was trying to visit a family in a hospital that I had never been to before. Um, I kind of knew where the hospital was located, but I needed help finding the entrance and the parking area, so I set up my trusty phone GPS, and it bossed the whole part of the journey that I already knew. It's like, go here. I already know this. You don't have to tell me this. It's telling me all the way, and then I get to the place where I need help. 
and I depended on the voice of that GPS. And I should have known better because it didn't look right where it was taking me. It guided me into a neighborhood, to a dead-end street, and then it took me to a, uh, told me to park. And I kid you not, the GPS said in its computer voice, exit the vehicle and proceed on foot for 500 yards through the woods till you arrive at your destination. And I thought, you have to be joking. I was in the middle of a big city or practically downtown. But yes, it had parked me next to a forest. And I think that GPS was playing some sort of twisted joke on me because I'd talked back to it so much. So eventually I got to my destination. I turned off the GPS and I found the right way. I have a love-hate relationship with GPS. GPS is an incredibly helpful voice for navigation, but you have to know when to listen to it and when to ignore it. And that is true for all the voices of life. Everywhere you go, there are voices that demand much of you, but may not care about you. It's hard to know which voice you should listen to and which one to guard against. It's hard to know how to avoid feeling cynical when things aren't when the voices seem to be all against you. I want to be a person of life, full of life. I want to be a person who has hope for the future. I want to be a person who's glad of the people that I meet, and I want that for you too. And today our text in the Bible tells us this. These these are my words, but here is the message that I think is encapsulated. When it comes to discerning, the confession of Jesus Christ is the key to your vitality and your ability to discern the competing voices that would lead you to God or towards lifelessness. As you and I continue through the letter of 1 John, today we're going to encounter a text that deals specifically with discernment. The church that John's writing to is struggling with knowing which teachers to trust and which ones to guard against. And in the early church, here's the situation. Most congregations in that first century after uh, when the church was just getting started, they were isolated. There's usually only one fellowship, one congregation per city. Uh, They typically had no formally trained leader. It was whoever the apostles could disciple for the short time they were there. Um, And they trained as the congregation grew. The church would be lucky to have a Bible, which was usually just the Old Testament. It probably was written in Greek, not Hebrew. Uh, They didn't have the New Testament because it was still being written. If they were lucky, they might have a letter from an apostle or a gospel or a few lines from a gospel. And communication was difficult. There's no text messaging. There's no video calls. You could not take an Uber to go visit the church in the next town over. Travel between churches took days, weeks, and months. So when a Christian arrived on your doorstep to teach about Jesus, they were surely welcome. This was a rare treat. But not every teacher had good intent or even correct theology to teach, and some were even malicious. Some insisted that they had the real truth about Jesus. Some just liked the authority and the free meals that came with the title teacher. And that's what happened in the church that John was writing to. Teachers and people with authority insisted that they had the true understanding of Jesus Christ and what it means to follow God. They were a voice different from that of John the Apostle. Now the people of the congregation had to make a decision. Which voice do we trust? How on earth were these first Christians to discern 
who was good and who was dangerous. In the same way, you and I also have to discern every day. How on earth are we to do this? How do we really know which voice to follow? And our text today gives us a straightforward and simple answer that you and I need to hear urgently. So I want to read the text to you from 1 John chapter 4, and it's verses 2 and 3. So it's a short text, but it really has a message there about how to discern. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now, even now, already in the world. Well, what are we to make of these words? What strange words? The Antichrist. That's such a a powerful word that conjures images of end times. And John had a specific issue that he was addressing when he wrote this letter. There were people who were assuming the role of teacher who were misleading the rest of the church. Now, we don't know everything that they were teaching, but it appears that they wanted to claim that the physical human body was completely evil, evil and unredeemable. It was uh, a very common idea among the Greeks, and they believed it was only the soul that was spiritual and redeemable. Now, with that thought came two other strange ideas. First, if the body could not touch the spiritual things, then it could not corrupt the soul. And so, what came from that was this idea of do whatever you want to your physical body because it's not redeemable anyway. So, it's only your soul that matters. And so, the teachers, these false teachers seem to be teaching that sinful behavior was not a problem because the body wasn't redeemable. Just worry about your soul. Don't worry about what you do in the flesh. The second thing they also believed was that Christ could not be human. They said, you know, how on earth could God take on a body if the physical body was evil? So, they were beginning to teach that Jesus was an ordinary man who the Spirit of Christ resided in. This developed even more as the decade went by, uh, next 20 years went by, and became a teaching known as Gnosticism. And they believed that the Spirit of Christ, the Gnostics, descended upon the man Jesus at the moment of baptism and then departed from the body of Jesus when he was on the cross. Uh, They could not comprehend why it would be uh, holy and good for God to have a human body or even die. So, they separated the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. They said, they just can't be the two same things. Um, so, instead of Jesus Christ, they really believed in Jesus and Christ. But you cannot divide Jesus. You just can't. And you know what? Many people do the same thing today. People want to pick and choose the parts of Jesus and his teaching that they like, and then they want to ignore what they don't like. And it's this uh, new dividing of Christ. It's a new dividing of Christ. And as you will hopefully see, it's not really new, but the same division these Christians were dealing with in the first century. And so, it's important to learn how to discern these these voices and go, which one do you trust and which one do you don't? And so, we need a tool to learn how to discern. And 
Uh, there's a story I can think of that reminds me of how important it is to have tools to help discern. Uh, as a teenager in the early 90s, 1990s, I was a part of the Boy Scouts of America, my local troop, uh, Troop 4 in Canton, Ohio. It was a great program to be a part of. When I was there, the troop had about 80 boys in it, and there were about 10 to 12 uh, men helping the scoutmaster. And uh, I will say this. Do you know what happens when you get that many men together who care about each other? I'll tell you exactly what happens. They play jokes on each other. It's usually done in love, but they play jokes on each other. And that humor tells tells you that you're part of the group. I can remember one man sitting next to the campfire, one of the adult leaders. He was he had a fan, a paper fan in his hand, and he was wafting the smoke away. And one of the boys said, well, that's a good idea. Can I get a fan too? And he said, yeah, sure. There's a couple of them over there. Just make sure you pick up a left-handed one. It's only the left-handed smoke shifters that work. And the boy stood there like, what do I do? How do I find a left-handed fan? It's just a fan. There aren't left-handed ones. It was a joke. One summer it was discovered that one of the assistant scoutmasters didn't like snakes, and so the other adults took turns hiding a rubber snake in places to startle him. Um, they always told fish stories to one another. They see, would see if they could fool one another with a more bizarre story. It was all in pretty innocent fun. And there was one moment I can remember. My uh, dad was on the camp out. He was one of the adults that helped out. And we were on a hike. And uh, on this occasion, he was helping some of the scouts, the boys, learn how to identify different wildflowers. And uh, on that hike, uh, he was helping them. And then he spotted something interesting just off the trail. So he took a step or two and walked over and was just kind of off on his own. And a few of the other scoutmasters noticed my dad and said, hey, what are you looking at? And my dad responded, oh, it's, I didn't expect to see this. It's pretty neat. It's a square-stemmed monkey flower. And there was silence. Followed by one of the scoutmasters saying, uh-huh. Sure you did. I think you just made that name up, square stem monkey flower. Who names a plant that? And so my dad pulled his uh, wildflower field guide out from his uh, little pack that he had, and he showed them a picture and the description and how to identify it, and they all realized it was no joke. It was just a funny name for a flower. The field guide had helped prove the truth of the flower. And when it comes to discerning the competing voices of this world, we need such a field guide. And John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, it gives us a very specific and concise field guide for discerning between the different voices we have. It's the Holy Spirit. So I want to take a look at just three words today. Um, to kind of position this text around as we talk about how to listen to these voices in our world. And these three words are discern, confess, and then a caution. So let's look at that word discern. Discernment done rightly should be an act of encouragement. It should be productive. It should be unifying. If discernment ever demeans people, ever hurts people, ever divides the church, then there's at least somebody in that process of discernment that's not Holy Spirit-driven. One of the greatest keys to discernment, 
that we have is to trust in the authority of the Holy Spirit. John tells us that the Holy Spirit is consistent. He has a job, and he will always lead you to Christ. He will always glorify Christ. And so, we can look at a couple of passages of Scripture. There's the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 26, that says, this is Jesus talking, he says, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to tell you about me. So, the Holy Spirit's job is to point out Jesus and Jesus rightly. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, we read this. It's Jesus again. He says, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Again, Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit, he is going to glorify me. It's the Holy Spirit's job to glorify Christ. It's one thing that he does for the Christian. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, we have another verse. This is Paul this time. And here he writes, therefore, he's talking about discerning between false prophets and, and the voices you should listen to. And he says this, therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's job to glorify Jesus, to point us to Jesus. So, I'm going to ask you to trust that the Holy Spirit will do His job. The truth, uh, the Holy Spirit is the witness to the truth about Jesus Christ. Christ. That's the first part of discernment. Now, discernment also needs to recognize danger. Now, in our text today, the word Antichrist appears. It's a word that tends to dominate when it shows up. Someday, the Antichrist will come and will try to win over the world as though he were the Christ. The Antichrist, the big one that's coming, is the culmination of all the little Antichrists, because John tells us there are some that are already here. Uh, And the scripture describes him as blasphemous, a persecutor, opposed to God, uh, opposed to Jesus, that he's profane, that he's lawless, that he seeks to worship, he seeks worship for himself. And John warns against the Antichrist, but he also mentions that there are many Antichrists, and those little Antichrists are any person who's opposed to God and especially opposed to Jesus, and they are dangerous. And every day you will encounter people who are opposed to God and people who are opposed to Jesus, people who want to diminish who Jesus is. They want to lead you away from him. And you need to see the danger and you need to make a decision whenever you encounter them to not give them authority over your eternity. Be cautious about giving them a place of power in your mind, your thought life. Be cautious about giving them allegiance through loving them. Because we can love people who are trying to take us away from Christ. And that's a dangerous position to be in. But we also need to care about those antichrists because sometimes they don't realize what they're doing. They need the hope of heaven too. Pray for them that they would know Jesus and be transformed by his saving power. And our chief job as Christians is to proclaim and to confess to people regularly even the Antichrists, because I would propose 
that probably just about anybody who's not a Christian is on the edge of being an antichrist. We need to confess to them regularly the life of Jesus, that God became flesh, that he died for our sins, that he was buried and raised, and he's now ascended into heaven, he's seated in the right hand, and he will be our judge. Now, I have a caution for you whenever you see the word antichrist in the Bible. Take that word very seriously. But remember, the Antichrist wants your attention. The Antichrist would love for you to read 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, and only worry about spotting Antichrists. He would love for you and me to forget that this text of Scripture, above all else, points to Jesus, fully God and fully man. So, how do I discern and watch out for Antichrists and guard against those voices that could lead me astray? The key is knowing Jesus. You will spot a counterfeit by knowing the authentic thing. And so, if you want to spot the counterfeit voices of this world that would lead us astray, know Jesus more and more. If you do a quick search on how to spot fake paper money, you will see the best way to spot a fake is to uh, know what authentic money is like. New bills have color-changing ink on the bottom right corner in that number there. Um, like on a, well, let's say a $100 bill, it looks gold until you tilt it away from you, then it turns green. They have watermarks to the right of the portrait. The printing on, on paper money is raised up, so if you run your fingers across it, you can feel the bumps in the texture. If you look closely at the paper, which is actually cloth, you'll see tiny red and blue threads embedded in the fabric of the bill. Uh, there's even microprinting in a strip that should be uh, printed on authentic money that, that usually says what the denomination is. Sometimes it has a message printed in it. And so what you'll find is, is that you learn how to spot counterfeits by knowing what the real thing should look like. And it's the same way with discerning false prophets and antichrists. The best way to discern is to get to know Jesus. There are a lot of people pointing out all the counterfeit and the bad stuff. Hey, stay away from that. Be wary of that. Guard against that. And that's fine, but it is better to know Jesus and to help those near you to know Jesus as well as possible. And one of the ways that we remember Jesus is by confession of who he is. Let's turn for a moment and look at that idea of confession. So, let's go to that word, confess. John tells us in the text today that anyone who acknowledges, or I'm going to use the word confess, who confesses Jesus, that he came in the flesh, they're from God. What we confess is of vital importance. So, maybe you're probably wondering, well, how do I know the person that says, oh yeah, Jesus came in the flesh? How do I, how do I know they're not just saying words? And how do I know if they really believe that or not? What's the difference between true confession and just lip service? What if a person's just speaking words, but they don't mean them? Well, there are clues in our text that help us to, to dig into that. We need to look at the word that uh, is, reads acknowledge, uh, and I've said is confess. That word is uh, not just about what you say, but it's about your allegiance. The Greek word is homologeo, homologeo. And this word has a range of meanings that go a bit deeper than if we were to just say acknowledge or even confess. It's more than just saying, you know, hey, yeah, Jesus is, is pretty good. This word is the same. The homologeo has the weight of committing to a promise. 
to be of common mind or agreement about something in unity with someone, to concede to the truth, to say, hey, there's no no other way I could believe anything anything else. This is the truth. Uh, this word also is used to describe a binding testimony in a court of law. It's to profess allegiance. Homologeo, uh, homologeo is a word with weight to it. It cannot be lip service. It is a spoken word uh, that is embodied by the speaker, the one who says it. In the case of Christ, a person who truly confesses Jesus is completely submitting to Jesus. It's, it's something they believe with their whole heart. It's reflected in every part of their life. They truly, uh, every part of them is all in on what they're saying about Jesus. Confession is important. I've shared it many a times. I'll continue to share it. Romans 10.9 is one of my favorite Bible verses. It says this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That verse alone is a wonderful little uh, leading in how to become a Christian. But in it, is this important teaching of you must declare, you must say, you must confess who Jesus is. He is Lord. Another verse that's another type of confession, to, so we can understand some of the depth of confession, comes from Psalm 51 verse 4. And it's about the confession of sin. It's about, I, I think it's a good example about how to properly confess your sin, the depth at which you feel it. Psalm 51 4 reads like this, Against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. It's a confession of, yes, Lord, I have sinned against you. John tells us that it is the confession, our, our confession of Jesus Christ, or our lack of it, that is the key to discerning. Which voice should we listen to? Which one should we not? I need you to hear this clearly. The person of Jesus is the church's most important confession, and the person of Jesus is the key to our being able to discern different voices in this world. There are going to be false prophets, there's going to be false teachers and antichrists of all kinds in our world today. There are pastors who teach their preferred version of Jesus Christ. There are cults that teach a different type of Christ. There are atheists and non-religious people who would strip away the divinity of Jesus. If you want to discern the good, the bad, and the danger of any person you encounter, find out what they believe about Jesus. If it's a pastor, a friend, a teacher, an artist, whoever, find out what they say about Jesus. That will be your key tool of discerning. Should I listen to this voice or not? Let's take a look at two groups that are cults in our culture. They don't like being called cults, but they are. There's the Mormon church. What do they teach about Jesus? When you dig into what they teach about Jesus, because they prefer to start with what's similar to the Christian church. When you dig into what the Mormons teach, they teach that Jesus was a person just like you and me who became God and that we too can become gods. That's different from what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus was God or is God and he became fully human. Not the other way around. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is a God, separate from God the Heavenly Father. And they also teach that Satan is a God on the same level as Jesus. 
And that's not true either. The great test for any teacher, any group, or power that would influence you is whether or not they confess the whole person of Jesus Christ. And that is what our text is telling us to do. Look for the acknowledgement of Jesus coming to flesh, Jesus fully God and fully human. How do you discern the Spirit? The Holy Spirit will lead you to the full person of Jesus. How do you discern uh, the people and things around you, whether they're good to trust? They should lead you to the full person of Jesus, if they're to be trusted. Beware of anything or anyone that denies Jesus or leads you away from Jesus or points you to a different type of Jesus than what's outlined in the Bible. Do not give them space in your mind or power over your heart. That is a danger zone to be in. Now, John is specific. He says, Jesus come in the flesh. And in our worship service today, and if you aren't in the main worship service, I understand, uh, we read several New Testament texts that are also confessions used in the early church. And I'm not going to read those texts, but I want to listen uh, list them out for you. I'll, I'll put them in the notes that come, uh, the little description that usually accompanies this podcast, but I'll read these references. You can read them too. These are each confessions that the early Christians would recite when they gathered for worship. And so, these are the different scripture references. You can look at 1 Timothy 3.16, Matthew 16, verse 16, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, and Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20. Each of those texts confess Jesus Christ. They declare who Jesus is. I mean, the whole Bible talks about it, but those texts specifically are confessions. We believe Jesus to be this, or in the case of Matthew, it's Peter saying, this is who I think Jesus is. The church is to confess the person of Jesus and his atoning work. As a church, when we gather together as Christians, we are to declare the incarnation, the divinity, the birth, the crucifixion, the death and burial, that he was raised, that he ascended to heaven, that he's the judge of mankind. Confession is the right estimation of who Jesus is, and it's a personal acknowledgement of his lordship. Who we say Jesus is affects what we believe Jesus can do about salvation. It believes what we believe Jesus, it affects what we believe Jesus can do about atonement for sin. Who we say Jesus is affects what we believe about his divinity and his authority. We better get what we say about Jesus right. Now, I want to point out just real lightly here what's not in these scripture confessions? And I'll challenge you to go read them on your own. You know what's not in them? Ironically, it's not the actual teachings of Jesus. It's not the not claims that Jesus was a nice guy or a good teacher, that he loved the unlovable or that he ate with sinners. Those aren't in those confessions. What is in those confessions, those, those scripture references I read to you? What's in it is the person of Jesus, fully God, fully man, his atoning work and reign as king. The person of Jesus is essential. It is the core of who Jesus is and his ministry. I want to share something with you here. It's not scripture, so I want to be careful of that. It's the Apostles' Creed. Uh, 
It's one of the great confessions from the history of the church. It's not the Bible, but it's biblical. And you'll get a sense from the authors that they were most concerned about the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read it, and I want you to hear, and the, the largest portion of it is about Jesus. So it begins like this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. That's the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it's easy to find. It's, you can find it in inner search, internet search pretty easily. But the point I'm making here, this early, early confession of the church, the lion's share of it, the, the most of the text is about what those scripture creeds are about declaring the person of Jesus. It doesn't declare his teachings as much as his actions. This is who he is, and this is what he did. He's fully divine. He came to this earth. Ah. The Apostles' Creed gives the most space to the person of Jesus, that he's divine, that he came in flesh and blood, that he died by crucifixion, he was buried, he was raised, he ascended, he's seated in heaven, and he's our judge. The early church fathers knew the importance of confessing Christ correctly. They knew that if you get Jesus wrong, you've missed the point. And that's the problem a lot of people have today. There's some major false teaching in our culture today, and it's this. A lot of it goes like this. A lot of people try to follow the friendly version of Jesus as opposed to the divine version of Jesus. People love to say that Jesus was a good teacher. I'm convinced that when they say that, they haven't really read his teachings. They, they, they like to say, well, he was a nice teacher. He was a friendly teacher. He was nice to bad people. He sticks up for the oppressed. He, he tells off the religious, religious leaders who should have known better. And, he, and he, he eats with sinners. And he does those things. There's two problems with this teaching. First is that this teaching says there's nothing wrong with you and me. Everything I just described to you is when people say, well, Jesus came to eat dinner with others. He came to be nice to others. He came to help others, the ones who had the problems. And we should feel bad, and we should go help those ones too. Now, yeah, we should help others, but we all have the problem of sin. We're all in danger. We all need help. The second problem with this idea of picking and choosing what you like about Jesus is that the divinity of Jesus in our culture today is at best crippled, and at worst, we unknowingly strip it away. You don't really have to say, have God, a knowledge of God, to want to say that people are nice and that we should be kind. In fact, you can only say such things if you take away the divinity of Jesus, if you take away the knowledge of God. The divinity of Jesus means that holiness himself came to this earth and walked among us. Because no one's able to approach a holy God. 
And so God approaches us. Jesus, the divine creator, becomes human to draw near to us, to draw us near to him. He must be divine. He must be human. Jesus cannot be divided and rearranged to fit your personal preference. Athanasius is one of our early church fathers. That's his name, Athanasius. I know it's a mouthful. And he stood nearly alone trying to pull the church back from the brink of heresy. And he knew what the critical importance it was to proclaim the person of Jesus. And so, in one of his many famous speeches, he said this about Jesus. Only one who was fully human could atone for human sin. And only one who was fully divine could have the power to save us. It takes the full Jesus Christ to bring about salvation. So, we need to confess him. We need to know who we're believing in. Now, I want to turn to that last idea, caution. When it comes to discerning the good and the bad in this world, it is so easy to become cynical. It's so easy to get frustrated by endless amounts of evil becoming filled with frustration and fear. Uh, parents, I know this is especially true as we try to raise our children. We, uh, You're going to wear yourself out hunting down every bad thing. You just can't do it. So, I tell you, as you try to discern Instead of discerning away from evil, discern towards Christ. Look for Jesus. That is enough. And there isn't enough of just going for Jesus happening. Your kids need to know more about who Jesus is, less of what to stay away from. There's a text of scripture that I think should be considered alongside 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. The text is from 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 19 through 22, and it reads like this. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. Now, I have had many people quote to me over the years, don't quench the spirit, meaning don't get in God's way. And they're right. But 1 John chapter 4 gives us a context for the quenching. The Holy Spirit's job is for glorifying Christ, pointing to him. So, when we obsess over troubles, hey, stay away from that. Back off from that. That's dangerous. You shouldn't get into that. Don't listen to that. Don't read that. Don't watch that. We're running the risk of taking glory away from King Jesus and giving authority to what we're fixating on. So, I say, do not quench the Spirit. The Spirit is trying to glorify Christ, and you should too in all that you do and all that you confess. Every moment of every day is an opportunity to proclaim, to confess Jesus. When we gather as a church, we have an opportunity to confess Jesus. We should be doing it every time we worship. When you are tempted, when you're facing temptation, you're not sure what to do, stop and confess who Jesus is. One final scripture verse comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. It says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips that openly profess his name. And don't forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So, Doing good is a sacrifice, sharing with others is a sacrifice, but lips that profess the name of Jesus is a sacrifice, an act of worship that pleases God. Confession of Jesus is our privilege and an act of worship. So, take up the call 
and be a person who confesses Christ. Believe wholeheartedly. Let it permeate every part of your life and submit to his lordship. It is our privilege, it is our privilege to bring glory to God by confessing Christ often and everywhere we can. Let us pray. Father God, I come before you now in prayer. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus, your son, born in the flesh, to walk this earth, to die on the cross, to pay for all sin. Thank you that it didn't stop with death, but with resurrection, that he is in heaven, that he's king of kings and he's Lord of lords. Father, help us each to be a people who confess Christ clearly all of our days and help us to discern this in this world and see those who confess Christ and be wary of those who do not. Lead us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.